Hello and happy 242nd birthday, America. Today we discuss augmented reality, how the EU plastics strategy is pushing for innovations in bioplastics. We sit down with Betty Lynn Kraft, who joins us to discuss her Phoenix Challenge Foundation. And of course, Tom has to apologize for his fake news. All this and much, much more on this July edition of Inks and Updates. Welcome to Ink and Updates, your touch point for the flexographic industry. Stay informed about industry news and advertise your business or service to the community. All right, so we got a lot of news to get to today. You know, it's actually likely that we're going to have two or three different podcasts because there's a ton going on in the industry. But before we get started, Tom has to recap one of his mistakes from the last podcast. Well, I, would, I, well, I mean, you know, mistakes kind of harsh. Harsh? Only because I didn't... Misinformation? Mis- well, maybe it's yeah, misinformation. Fake my... news, perhaps? Oh, wait, 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 wait. We don't, we don't have to drag me through the gutter here. So last week we were talking about the uh, Garco introduces the uh, new digital ink rub tester. And uh, we were kind of saying, why did they have to go ahead and reinvent the wheel? You know, it has to rub on everything. Dry rub, wet rub, and a heated rub. And, uh, well... I made a mistake when I said that the Southern Rub Tester did not come with that feature. Feature. Yeah, feature is a good word for that. So uh, it happens. I looked it up. I felt, felt really bad about it. So before I get all these uh, complaints from Southern Rub Tester lovers out there, the uh, Southern Rub Tester uh, does come with a heated weight uh, capable of testing from 150 degrees Fahrenheit all the way up to 500. And so... As uh, my wife always tells me I have to do, I must apologize. So, there you go. moving on. All right. So, for those of you who may not know, the EU launched uh, what is known as the Plastic Strategy early in 2018, maybe late 2017. According to an article by Alatham and Watkin posted on January 19, 2018, the strategy puts forth uh, a number of goals to be reached by 2030. Some of those goals are ensuring all plastic packaging is reusable or recyclable and uh, in a cost-effective manner, recycling more than 50% of the plastics waste uh, from the year uh, that Europe generates, that's a 20% increase, and increasing fourfold the recycling and sorting industries, which, according to them, will enable the creation of 200,000 new jobs. Okay, so within the strategy, there are also is a rumored plastic tax. The, art- the article from Latham and Watkin goes on to state that the Commission, the European Commission, only said that it intends to carry out an impact assessment on various ways to tax the use of single-use plastics without providing any additional details on potential models. Well, some of the problems with that, I mean, single-use plastic, I mean, it's quoted in here in a different article. Basically, using a single, single-use plastic takes five seconds for you to produce. You use, it, you use it for five minutes and then it takes 500 years for it to break down. So, so basically what we see uh, and what we will continue to see is an influx in research and development into the manufacturing and use of what are called bioplastics. These are, uh, basic definition would be plastics derived from plant-based materials and are used to replace, in part at least, plastics derived from petroleum. According to an article published on January 29th in the Irish Times entitled, Are Biological-Based Plastics a Realistic Replacement for Petrochemical Plastics? More than 300 million tons of plastics are produced every year, less than 1% of which are from bio-based plastics. One-third of that are produced for disposable plastics. Now, the Berlin-based European Bioplastics Association predicts that the use of bioplastics made from sugarcane, wood, and corn will grow by 50% in the next five years. Now, of course, 
In large part, that's a push from the plastics strategy uh, out of the, coming out of the EU. However, the article goes on to state, what many consumers don't realize is that plastics made from renewable plant sources won't necessarily solve the problem of plastics debris because over 50% of bio-based plastics currently produced are biodegradable, I'm sorry, are not biodegradable and need to be recycled. For a bioplastic to be less harmful to the environment, it needs to be both bio-based and biodegradable. Even then, it will often only be biodegradable at industrial composting facilities where temperatures and humidity levels are high enough to decompose its constituents. So not in your backyard compost no, pile? No, it's not your backyard compost. It doesn't sound like that at all. <laughs> and uh, basically, it goes on to say here, uh, if biodegradable plastics, either from petrochemical sources or plant-based sources, is put into recycling, it still becomes a contaminant. That's very confusing to the consumer. Exactly. Like, I'm just, you know, Joe Sunday. and That's right. So Anna-Marie Mohan, senior editor at The Packaging World, asks this question. Sustainable packaging materials, is it worth the cost? She asks, one of the biggest challenges, or states rather, one of the biggest challenges for producers of environmentally friendly packaging is to convince consumers that these sustainable materials are worth the cost. She quotes uh, Mayu Thieven, associate analyst at FMCG at Global Data, and she says, pressure from government and consumer image is forcing companies to better track the environment impact of their packaging. However, concerns over cost, barrier properties, and product safety, barrier properties is a big one when it comes to food packaging, the product functionality and scalability that must be addressed for sustainable materials to increase their market share, which of course, as I stated before, I believe is at 1%. Teven concludes, the biggest challenge for producers is to convince consumers that these sustainable packaging materials are worth the cost. Although there are long-term savings to be made by manufacturers moving to more sustainable materials, in the short term, prices will likely need to increase to cover the research and development costs of developing these new materials and, of course, upgrading the factories and machinery capable of doing these things. In response to these uh, increased pressures from the European Commission, um, among other things, a partner in packaging solutions, Emzur, Emzur, I'm sure? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> launches a com compostable single-use plastic bag. And reading from the article from Flexible Packaging, Emser France, SPO, has developed a bio-based and fully compostable single-use plastic bag. However, this single-use bag is 40% bioplastics, which means the other 60% is from petrochemicals. Um, according to France, they require by 2025 that the bio-based material be 60%. So we got some ways to go, but of course we're at about, you know, seven years to get there. Well, some of my concern is, are we, you know, is the big push to uh, move to alternative plastics and are we moving too fast when it comes to the safety portion of it? I mean, part of the, you know, the whole thing with uh, migration and being able to keep the food safe and you know, all these questions that I think, you know, it's like green, green, green. And I understand that plastic is, is a necessary evil in our uh, industry, for sure. Um, and glass being the safest, however, it's probably the heaviest, right? So, you know, my concern is, hey, are we moving too fast? Well, because even the single, even a single use plastic bag, uh, right here that's 40% bioplastic. The equipment that is required to recycle, I mean, recyclers don't even want it in their trash bin. 
because it gums up all their machinery. Right, 60% of it currently isn't, uh, isn't recyclable. Right. Well, the other side of that argument, um, there's another article here, flexible packaging, or at least the other side of, of kind of achieving the same goal, which means reducing plastics, reusing plastics uh, in our film. A article from Flexible Packaging notes, Stephen Sargent, PhD, the general manager of R&D Technology for Flex Film International. And just a note on this guy, we went ahead and looked at his... <laughs> he's really, 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 really he's smart. He's really smart. <laughs> I mean, this guy, we looked at his LinkedIn page. I counted, I think I counted right, 49 <laughs> patents this guy yeah. is named in. Right. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, but anyway... So we should have him come in here, and we'll just sit in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please talk for a right. half hour. Right. <laughs> um, so Sargent says that uh, FlexFilm produces grades of PCR and PET films with up to 90% recycled content. The company intends to roll the lines out globally to provide both a sustainable and cost-effective solution. Typically, he states, and I'm quoting, in an average package, which is about the size of a notepad, the cost, of, the cost to switch from virgin materials to recycle-based products is less than a penny a pack. The cost to switch from virgin material to recycled-based products is less than a penny per pack. And in many instances, much less than one. So there are a lot of bio-based products out there that are five to ten times the cost versus recycled materials. So as we talked about from the other article from Emzer, they're focusing on Biobase, they're a European company. Here in the United States, we're focusing, it seems at least, uh, in part on making sure that the plastics that are produced are being used again and being recycled into the flexible packaging materials. If, a, if under a penny is difficult to absorb, he says, if a tenth of a penny, how committed is the industry, he asks. Right? I mean, how committed is it? If, if, if you think about it from a consumer standpoint, if a tenth of a penny is difficult to absorb when you're talking about you know, the cutthroat world of, of flexible packaging, how likely is it that consumers, at least particularly in America, are going to really accept bioplastics, which is five to ten times the cost of recycling the material? Well, and educating. I mean, I think education for all of them is uh, from the manufacturers to the consumer is probably key here, right? Because there's big misconceptions out there about what's biodegradable, what's recyclable, what's a, I mean, it just... What can be separated. What can be separated, what can be not. Yeah. I mean... Uh, How much of it ends up in You know, if, if you have a cardboard box and you had a pizza on it, it's not recyclable. City of Chicago will not take it. Really? It's garbage. Throw it away. Why is that? Because it's contaminated with the grease and oils, with the grease and oils, and so that they don't want it. I actually didn't know that. That's interesting. Right, but everybody's putting their pizza box in the in their little green container out front, and they don't want it when it gets there. So someone's got to sit there and separate all that. Someone's got to sit there and separate it all. And well, what's we, the point of having the big recycling? You know, all the pizza boxes I get, they have the big recycling stand on the side. It's printed and everything. It's recyclable until you put the pizza in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's that goes to you know educating the consumer. Right. So in a Q&A with Flexible Packaging, uh, Dr. Steve Sargent, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he's talking about compostability, and he says it's difficult to inform and educate the consumers on compostability because some of them are com compostable and some of them aren't. Some of them are made up of a material that is maybe 50 or 40% compostable and the other 60% is not. So he says it's easier, essentially, to educate the consumer 
from biosourced materials, which means it's recycled material. We took garbage and we turned it into flexible packaging, is, a, is a, basically a paraphrase of what he's saying here. He says that's a lot easier to educate people, and they're much more accepting of it because it's easy to understand. So to add insult to injury, China. Yeah, China's not taking our trash anymore, everybody. <laughs> so, uh, Who knew that they were buying it in the first place? Well, sure they are buying a lot of it. Uh, according to Bloomberg, China just handed us the, handed the world a 111 million ton trash problem. A uh, few consider uh, used plastic to be a valuable global commodity, and yet China has imported 106 million tons of old bags, bottles, wrappers, and containers worth 57.6 billion since 1982. Uh, the first year it was disclosed as data. They're the largest importer of trash, the plastic and mixed paper. One third of it gets recycled. And the other, and the rest of it goes to China. Just take a third of what you're recycling in your house. A third of it's getting recycled. The rest of it's going in the landfill. But not in this country. But not in this country. It's becoming somebody else's problem. Uh, so China has says we have had enough. We're not taking it anymore. And uh, now waste managers are starting to stockpile the garbage around a community near you because they really don't know what to do with it. Uh, large amounts of recycling is ending up in the landfills. Outsourcing to other countries is a possibility. Uh, Vietnam and some other countries are deciding if they're going to get involved uh, in this uh, little problem that we're having. You know, it's amazing to me when you say something like this, and I didn't read this article. It makes me mad. Well, it's just think about this for a second. You you source a lot. Of, I mean, a lot of our raw materials come from China, right? Right. So you have a you have a process where the raw materials are coming into the country, either made or not made. Then they're turned into single-use material. Then they're thrown away. Then they're put back on a ship and shipped back to China so they can throw it away. Yeah, nearly, yeah, nearly four-fifths. Talk about a world economy. Good right. Lord. Nearly four-fifths of all plastic that has been thrown into landfills or the environment. A tenth of it has been burned. Uh, several million tons reach the oceans every year. I mean, we got a plastic ocean out there swimming around. And we talked about the 11,000 plastic particles that uh, yeah, a human would. being eats <laughs> every year. If they eat seafood, then. Right, that's if you eat seafood. Stick to beef. Just 9% of the total plastic ever generated, only 9% of the total plastic ever generated has been recycled. China took over half of the total in 2016, or 7.4 million metric tons. I don't even know what that looks like, but it's a lot. What article are you reading from? This is from Bloomberg. Uh, it was published last week sometime. I don't have the day on here. So anyway. We face a, uh, a plastics issue in this, in this world. Well, right? Starbucks has decided to get rid of their straws. They're not the only ones who are getting rid of straws. You know, if you're a straw manufacturer, now we ha you're going to have to do something else. Make lids. Make, yeah, well, that's what they're doing. They're making little sippy lids, but it's still, plastic, you know, it's still made out of plastic. So sure. we have an issue here in the United States. We're trying to figure it out. Uh, worldwide. So on to a lighter note, the Phoenix Challenge Foundation. Uh, are you familiar with them? Actually, I'm not. Well, according to this article, they're building the workforce of tomorrow. I could read the article, but I was actually able to get a hold of Betty Lynn Kraft, who runs the organization, and uh, she was willing to talk with me a little bit. So here's that phone conversation. Hi, this is Betty Lynn. How may I help you? 
Hi, Betty Lynn. This is Craig Tenorella from Interactive Inks and Coatings. I'm Hi, calling... how are you? I'm doing well. First of all, I really appreciate you taking my call. I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about uh, your foundation and uh, the Phoenix Challenge that's coming up. The Phoenix Challenge Foundation is a nonprofit group. We are dedicated professionals to the flexographic printing industry, and we work with high schools and colleges in order to help establish flexographic printing curriculum within the programs. And then we run the international skills competition for the high school students, and we have the one for the college students that is the Saturday before the forum for the FTDA. How did you personally get involved with this? Uh, it looks like you guys have been doing this for over 20 years. Yes. I actually, it was started by a teacher or a principal at a high school who wanted her kids to compete against other kids with flexographic printing, and she retired, asked me to take it from there, and I was a judge that first year, and that was 22 years ago, and we have now incorporated it, made a 501c3, and rest is history. Oh, very cool. So um, what's your golf tournament that you have coming up here on August 29th? The golf tournament is the main fundraiser for the Phoenix Challenge Foundation. Um, we use the money to help move presses from place to place, repair presses, um, help support the schools, and to provide um, income for the both competitions to have them. Along with, we also do sponsorships for each competition, both the high school and the college competition to help pay for everything. Um, we are strictly of the purest form of nonprofit. Um, it is not, there are no paid individuals. Every, it's all volunteer-based, and every dime we get goes back to the kids. That's excellent. So we're actually, uh, you guys are located right side of, outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, right? Yeah. Um, I actually run it out of my house. Oh, you too. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It, like I said, it is of the purest nonprofit you can get. <laughs> we run the high school competition at Central Piedmont Community College. It's usually held in the spring. Um, most of the time, it's like the third or fourth week of, of March. And then the other one is a year-long competition um, where they are giving a prompt in the um, fall, and then college kids work on it. And then they do a presentation of their product that they developed over the course of the year at the Saturday before forum. So, so it's, is... it's a they're totally two different kinds of competitions. The high school ones is a two-and-a-half-day two event where they have a math test, a pre-press test. They have to make printing plates. Um, then they have a uh, press test where they have an hour and 45 minutes to mount two printing plates, register them, and print what we call sellable stock. And then they have to clean up the press in the hour and 45 minutes. And then they have the knowledge test which is the level one certification test for the FDA. In the high school program, we try to introduce some ink on paper, right, and to the vocabulary and all that kind of stuff. And then they have an option at the end of high school, they are really ready to run narrow web printing presses. Um, they are already running narrow web printing presses in their classrooms because we only work with those that have hands-on printing in their classrooms. Um, and then if they want to further their education, they can go either to a two-year school or a four-year school that has graphic communications there. Um, the first place and second place winners of the Phoenix Challenge High School Skills Competition also receive a scholarship for college. So if they to be applied to, you know, further education if they would like to do that. Excellent.
Okay. So do you work with printers in the area? Yes, I do work with printers, some in this area, but not a lot in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. Um, We have some, we did have programs here, but the school system wanted to have, they pulled out their vocational programs out of of the general classroom. So we have a couple in Asheville. Um, There's one in Winsboro, South Carolina, Rock Hill, South Carolina, um, Chester, South Carolina. So there's some in the surrounding area. But we work with printers and suppliers all over North America. Um, we work with a Canadian group um, that works with trying to get it into the classrooms there. So, yeah, it's a very it's a very outreached program. And we have an unbelievable amount of volunteers that help um, when called upon. Because most of the time, it's not really money that we're that we need. It's more um, help within the schools, you know, maybe it's somebody to tell them where they can get sticky back or maybe it's they've got an issue with a press and they need something to fix. So we try to pair up our individual schools with suppliers and converters around their area so that they have a local resource to help support the program. Because a lot of the support is not money. It's more of time and effort. Right. Yeah, it really is. So it's a different type of program and it's really, really a cool program. And we are seeing so many positive results and seeing so many of the kids that we have put through the program are now coming into the industry. So it's a very slow amount as far as what the industry's needs are right now because we're in such dire need of employees in our in the flexo industry. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. But, we've, uh, we've done podcasts about that in the past um, with getting and training qualified press personnel into the industry and kind of bringing them up through. It's difficult to find them these days. It's almost impossible, yeah. I get calls. I usually have anywhere between 5, 15 calls a week on people looking for press operators, and we just don't have enough supplies. And that's what is engaging our industry personnel into working with these high schools to find graphic communication programs that we can add Flexo to. The shortage that we have right now is finding printing presses for the high school programs. Um, we traditionally use Mark Andy 830s or Concord Cadet 7-inch presses, which are your older mechanical presses, mm-hmm. because in the high school program, we're trying to teach them um, thinking skills, analytical thinking, and, and trying to figure out issues and stuff like that so that when they get into the college program or when they get out in the field, you know, when they get a fancier press, maybe one that has more bells and whistles, um, they actually know what's going on. Right. Yeah. It sounds like you're trying to teach them fundamentals first and then, you know, kind of crawl before you walk type of thing. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. So is this 100%, uh, this takes up 100% of your time or are you working in the industry at all as well? I came out of the industry. I did work in the industry for many years. Um, this is not 100% of my time. I'm also an office manager for a computer company. Okay. And so I do that, and I have various other titles that I have. I volunteer and do stuff. Plus, I'm a home, I am a homeschool mom. Oh, there you go. Okay. Well, I have a couple of young children myself, <laughs> so we'll be looking to do that pretty soon. Excellent. So you wear a lot of hats. Yes, I do. All yeah, right, so I do, and I enjoy it. How um, how can people get involved? Uh, you know, people listening to to our podcast here. How can people uh, find you? Maybe uh, get involved in your organization. Maybe even join this golf outing for August uh, 
what was it august 29th i believe august 29th um you can go to the website which is phoenixchallenge.org or you can contact me um my email address is um bcraft at carolina.rr.com or you can call me 704-309-3748 um reach out and I will let you know about the golf outing. There's a form on the website. Um, and if there's a potential, if you would like to start up a program, get me a name, a school, um, let me know, and I'll do whatever I can to help you out with whatever they need. Um, and that's, that's the big thing we have as far as the most is just networking. It's right. all about networking. Right, reaching out to high schools and graphic communication programs, it seems. And then trying to get them to, you know, bring Flexo into their into their curriculum. Yes. Okay. Well, Betty Lynn, I really appreciate thank you, you so much. my phone call. And um, well, thank you very much. All righty. Yep. Have thank a great you so day. much. Have a great day. Bye. Mm-hmm. Bye bye. So that's the phone conversation with Betty Lynn Craft. Uh, if you want to get involved, please go ahead and find her organization. They're doing a lot of good things for kids, getting people into the flexographic industry, getting people involved. And um, I really think it's a good charity. Charlotte is beautiful this time of year. We Absolutely. Fly out. Four? <laughs> okay, so I'm not sure if it was our last podcast that we did, but somewhere along the lines, you mentioned 19 Crimes Winery. I did. And their specialty labels. And um, They're fantastic labels, actually. They are fantastic, and I think they're the beginning of a growing um, industry-wide movement towards what's called augmented reality. Now, when we posted the last podcast, or whichever one it was, I'm actually not 100%, uh, a gentleman on Twitter reminded us that we barely scratched the surface. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. We, we, we did. Basically, uh, I had said that if you point your uh, phone at the label. that Like a QR code like, or something like, a, like yeah, that? Yeah, it's like a QR code, and it will tell you about the wine. And uh, yeah, no. Right. So let's talk a little bit about augmented reality. Um, it's in a lot of different industries, but it is creeping into uh, the label industry, obviously, with 19 Crimes Wine, and there's actually a few more that are out there now. And what this is, is you picture, first of all, you need an application. Uh, you download an app that, that handles it. And augmented reality essentially layers content on top of the real world, and you use your phone or your iPad as the window to view that world. There are mobile devices, obviously, as I just went over. You can also use PC and connected TV players. Um, and there are head-mounted displays that are coming out uh, of, that will be available, kind of pushing on to the, I think, of the Google. Didn't Google a while ago come out with those glasses? Yeah, they didn't take off, but maybe one day. And, of course, augmented reality really took off. Uh, the first example of it that most people will know is... Virtual reality? No, it's not virtual reality. It's the... Um... Pokemon? Yeah. The Pokemon. So the Pokemon Go, where everyone downloads the app and you can that was chase ridiculous. These Pokemon. That was ridiculous. Yeah. So people were like in there, my yard. I'm like, bro, you can't be in my yard. They're like, yeah, but there's a Pokemon in your yard. Uh, people made a business out of this. Gonna, like, like, the Uber drivers but, driving people around all day so they can hunt down <laughs> these Pokemon. But you're the one who's going to get hit upside the head. Not... Right. So but that's a great example because you have this virtual reality kind of overlaid onto the real world and you use your phone to, of course, see this virtual reality. Now, there's a few different types here. One's called SLAM, or Simultaneous Localization and Mapping, which is rendering virtual images over the real-world objects and maps the structure of the environment by localizing sensors with respect to the surroundings. The second is recognition-based 
augmented reality, which I believe is what they're using in uh, the label and labeling world. And this recognition-based or market-based augmented reality uses a camera to identify visual markers or objects, such as QR or 2D codes or natural features, NFT markers. The third is location-based and as opposed to recognition-based AR. Location-based AR relies on the GPS, digital compass, or velocity meter and accelerometer to provide data about the location and the augmented reality visualizations are activated based on those inputs. So when we talk about the recognition base and how this all ties back to Flexo, 19 Crimes was, I believe, the first, but again, like I said, there are others, that is now making it these labels that essentially come to life. So you download this app and the application, your, the phone, the camera on your phone will recognize the label. And when that happens, the label comes to life. The image literally starts to move and it begins to play a video and starts to walk out of the label and tells the story about anything, really. In 19 Crimes, they talk about the history and uh, they go on to, to really do some cool things. As far as a marketing ploy, this is absolutely genius. People are going around buying these buying this wine just to see. Yeah, just yeah, right. Just to uh, see what the story is. I mean, they have a whole movie here. 19 Crimes turn criminals into colonists. Upon conviction, the British rogues guilty of at least one of 19 crimes sentenced to live in Australia rather than death. The punishment is by transportation. Began in 1783 and many of the lawless died at sea. For the rough prisoners who made it to shore, a new world awaited as prisoners in the frontier. Basically, this is how Australia became to life. We're telling the story. Yeah, they're telling a history story through a label. Through a label. So uh, the possibilities here are, are crazy. Are endless. They are endless. Um, there was another one that I saw where the augmented reality actually works. So it tells one story if you have one bottle of wine. It tells that story. If you have two bottles of wine and you put them together, the AR um, will recognize that the two labels are together and tell a completely different story. So again, coming back to the marketing... This gets people to not only buy one label, but buy perhaps a whole set so they can see all the stories associated. Imagine with that with party. I mean, you know, oh, I, I now you have all these. these different bottles of wine and, well, you know, maybe you're sampling the product along the way. <laughs> I tried to buy these. I, I didn't do a ton of research, but uh, I couldn't find them. I, I'm sure that once the, um, the excitement of it kind of dies down a little bit, I'll be able to find them in stores. They're out, huh? Sold out. Well, I just couldn't find them. I, I literally... I mean, I found the website and everything, but I... Oh, yeah, there's a store locator right here. There's probably one right across the street. You found a store locator? Yeah, it's on the... Obviously, I did not do it. on the website. Search. Well, maybe we should go out and buy it. <laughs> Let's see here. That is called market research. Right. <laughs> Click 01. Uh-huh. Type in your uh, zip code. Oh, my. Oh, my. So as far as labels and labeling goes... Super Target or Jewel Osco? Oh, really? <laughs> I suppose I should have done a little more research. But anyway, so the future of this is uh, definitely coming to a store near you. It's a little expensive to develop, obviously, with the brand owners needing to do the front-end work through the application. Uh, there's a lot of software work that needs to go on to make these things work. But as the cost of that comes down, as it becomes more mainstream, we'll see it more and more often. But not just in, of course, labels and labeling. This is we're going to see it across platform. We already saw it in gaming. Now we're seeing it in, in labels and marketing. But the big one is healthcare is going to come up. So by 2025, the healthcare revenue 
from augmented and virtual reality will be around $5 billion. And some technology insiders expect to see the most advancements of AR technology in the healthcare industry as a whole. How are they planning on using that in healthcare? I mean, I, I mean, I get the whole, hey, we got like 19 convicts here and we're going to tell a story and you put all of them together, but how are they going to use that in healthcare? Starters, what they'll use it in healthcare is healthcare education, where you can use augmented reality to map out the human body in different ways. Maybe you want to see all the veins in the body. Maybe you want to see all the muscle tissue in the body. Maybe you want to see all the bone structures in the body. Virtual reality and, and augmented reality can help do those things. So I think for starters, definitely an education. As far as moving forward into the long-term healthcare, I can only guess. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, they're starting to do like uh, surgeries long distance these days uh, where they hook up the hook up the robotic arm, if you will, to the surgeon's hands and don't lose the Wi-Fi connection. But over, over a long distance, they're starting to do surgery, you know, you, you know especially in like a Small, <laughs> like, like especially the tech guy who's getting sued. Right in a in a small town environment, maybe you don't have a you know maybe you don't have a doctor. Or you're in a rural type type of environment, and right, you can get care from the best doctors in the world anywhere right. around the world. That's yep. interesting. So before we get to our one last thing, we do have some results from our bullet. Oh yes. Versus- well, the online poll. I mean, uh, there was a big discrepancy between you know what's the best chase scene. Listen, uh, we get to the, we cut to the chase. I was right. Right. Well, so we had a very scientific poll between uh, people in the office and uh, Facebook uh, friends. Uh, long and short of it is that uh, by a wide margin of fifty-two percent, bullet one between uh, bullet the bullet chasing and the born identity. Fifty-two percent. So that's not too big of a margin. Well, because the surprise is is that. Even though the question was between the two movies, um, what came out uh, without even asking was uh, the Blues Brothers came in at 15%, the chase scene in the great city of Chicago, uh, the chase scene of the Blues Brothers. They brought in an outlier. That wasn't part of the... Well, that that came... (laughs) So uh, the Blues Brothers got 15%. The French Connection got 10%. Minnie Cooper only got... An additional 10%. So the Mini Cooper tied with the French Connection, which wasn't even part of the poll. Uh, Gone in 60 seconds were, uh, was, a, was a good mention as well. So That's interesting. Um, actually, I'm pretty new to Twitter, but I did notice that we can actually do a poll. Like you can make a little um, poll on Twitter. Yeah. So I think next time that we have one of these things, we'll, we'll go ahead and make a Twitter poll and, and send that out. and Send it out to the masses. So, yeah, rather than just friends and family. Yeah. See if we can't get a wider array of, of research because I'm pretty sure 52% for bullet is just not even close. I think 80%. Wow. If we had a bigger pool, a bigger sampling. <laughs> well, you almost lost to the Blues Brothers. They weren't even on the... On, on the... <laughs> well, if, I, can't, I can't win. If that was don't... a fantastic chase scene, by the way, when they went through the mall. It, it is, but I can't win if people don't play you by might the be, rules. You might be too young for that. But All right, so what's the last thing you got, last thing you got for me today? Yeah, so the one last thing. Uh, Dreaming big, young entrepreneur sets out to conquer the publishing world. Part of Printing Impressions magazine on June 26, 2018, Ava Middleton, while her classmates are out for summer, which normally means vacation, swimming, and hanging out with friends, uh, she's decided that she wanted to publish her own magazine. Uh, The Mills Farm Magazine Kids Edition was launched 
due to a part from an anonymous donation to fund the magazine's print publication. After choosing Allen Press as the printer partner and local sales executive Kathy Laffery organized a press room tour for Ava, her brother Ryder, and her parents. She goes on to say that there's already something in our neighborhood called the Mills Farm Magazine, and I wanted to make one for kids. So uh, she started one for kids with her and her friends. They're doing it monthly, and uh, basically they take, uh, she invites all her friends over for pizza, and they tell stories. They made flyers. They went door to door. One of the questions was, how do you find stories to put in your magazine? And uh, Ava says, uh, we made flyers, and we went door to door. We also had a pizza party, and all the kids would come over to our house, and we would write stories to have pizza. Alan Press asked, did you write any of the articles? Ava says, I'm doing a top 10 list on every issue, and Ryder, her brother, is doing a pet of the month. So we also like to spotlight a kid. So in our day-to-day jobs, when we think that we're just uh, doing things uh, you know, repetitiously or we get bored with our job, somewhere out there, there's a kid who thinks what we do is cool. That's the one last thing. Young entrepreneurs, I love it. All right, well, thank you for listening to this edition of Ink and Updates. You can follow us on Twitter at CRTinarella or, of course, Inks underscore Inks for Tom or at Interactive Inks, where you can find all the information and Inks and Updates podcasts. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great day.